While everybody's gathering in and finding their seats, just a reminder that we're going to have a uh, our third and an educational series on current events this coming Sunday night at 6.30. There will be, uh, the lecture is from uh, Dr. Susanna Kokanen, who's the head of the Christian desk. Her official title is the uh, Christian Friends of Yad Vashem. And um, so she will be speaking on anti-Semitism. And that will go from about 6.30 to 7.20, uh, including some questions. And then there will be a short break, short break, just enough to get up, run to the restroom if you need to. And then we're going to have a presentation from the two IDF soldiers. And the goal is to be done by, by 8 o'clock. Then don't forget... Um, Dr. Ori Hempel for the men's prayer breakfast at 7.30 on the 22nd, the congregational meeting on the 23rd, and we will resume our Bible study methods class on the night of the 23rd. We have two more sessions, the 23rd, and just to make sure everybody's done and free, we will have our last class on Texas Independence Day, March the 2nd. So that's it for... Uh, for announcements. I don't think there's anything else. Uh, just a reminder, the Chafer Seminary uh, Pastors Conference will be on March 10th through 12th. The topic this year is on dispensationalism, which is going to quit, uh, fit quite well because uh, in a week or two, not this coming Tuesday, but uh, probably the next Tuesday, I'm going to start a new series on God's plan for the ages uh, following our study of Acts, and so that will help set the stage as introduction for the conference. And I'm hoping, I heard from Dr. Meisinger yesterday that he's feeling a little better and that he is uh, thinking very seriously that he might be coming. He's going to wait another week before he makes a decision. The, he had a PET scan about a month ago, and his cancer had not grown any, and it's an aggressive. They said it, the doctors were quite surprised because they thought it was a fast-growing cancer. So uh, apparently, whatever the treatment is, mostly prayer, he's doing better. So he may be coming. He's not sure yet. So we need to re- remember him in prayer. Continue to remember him in prayer, and then um, I guess that's about it. So. Uh, be prepared. We'll be putting some sign-up sheets for people helping out with different things for the conference here. Uh, probably they'll go up this Sunday. Isn't that right? They're out there now. They're out there now. Don't knock each other down on your way out to sign up. <laughs> but after class, you can saunter back there and sign up. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can be here this evening, that we can be encouraged and strengthened by your word, that we can be taught to properly understand the things that relate to the body of Christ and especially spiritual gifts. And we know that we live in an era when there is a lot of confusion about spiritual gifts, and we need the clarity of solid uh, exegesis of your word in order to understand the nature of the gifts, their purpose, and how we are to use them within the body of Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us as we go through these uh, matters this evening, review, and also new material. We pray that you'd help us to see how they apply to our own lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Romans. Well, before we go to Romans 12, go ahead and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Last time I talked about permanent versus temporary gifts. This is a problem today, and it has been in the Bible-believing segment of the Christian church. Uh, I use the term Christian church in its broadest sociological sense there. But within the Bible-believing church, since the advent of what is known as the modern Pentecostal movement that began on New Year's Eve in 1901, uh, when a Bible college student in Topeka, Kansas, by the name of Agnes Osmond, thought she was speaking in Chinese and uh, uh, spoke in tongues that night. And this was preceded by a decade or two of an increasing awareness in what was known as the holiness movement that there needed to be an overt sign of what they thought was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, defining it as a second work of grace that came after salvation. Now, no movement has probably been as divisive in Christianity uh, as the charismatic movement. It's um, It's been divisive for a number of reasons, but primarily because it put its emphasis on experience over doctrine. Experience, how do you understand the Bible? Do you understand on the basis of your experience, or do you understand on the basis of what the Word of God says? And in the charismatic uh, and it's known as the Pentecostal Holiness Movement because it came out of the Holiness Movement and the Holiness background. But what they came to, um, the problem that they had, was that they were interpreting their own spiritual life on the basis of experience, on the basis of experience. And unfortunately, this is so true about many believers. It's part of a subtle form of mysticism that has entered into evangelical Christianity, and actually it's been there since the, since the uh, uh, Protestant Reformation. It was very strong within the Anabaptist tradition. Later it became strong in what became known as the Pietistic tradition. And there's always been a sort of a weak strain of this in the Bible church movement. In It's a little stronger, I think, in some Baptist traditions because that goes back to the old Anabaptist roots. And, and it's very subtle. And this last week, uh, actually last summer, I noticed uh, <clears throat> with great joy that when there was teaching on certain subjects, certain topics that touched on this at Camp Arete, 
that Jeff and Mark Perkins and David Roseland and even Jim Myers all made it a real, uh, real slam at home point to try to kick this out of the thinking of young people. I wish we could figure out a way how to get some spiritual dynamite and blast it out of the thinking of a lot of adults. I was having a conversation with uh, Pastor Roseland this last week. He had, he had come down for a, um, a three-day Bible conference down in Corpus Christi last weekend, and he had, a, he had a great illustration I just thought I would pass along. He heard from a number of people who had come that for one reason or another they hadn't thought about coming to the conference, and then there was something that took place, some sort of circumstance in their life, and they took it as some sort of indication from God that they ought to go to this conference. And so, and the thing is, that is, if you've heard me teach on how to know the will of God, that is how to know the will of your emotions, how to know the will of your sub, you know, your subjective experience, how to know the will of anything, but it's not how you know the will of God. And David had a great illustration because in the day and a half, now remember he's living up there, uh, outside of Preston City, Connecticut, where the temperature has been a little bit colder than it's been here. And they've got a little bit more snow on the ground, and their heaters in their houses usually don't work like ours. They operate off of a, a radiator like, like most of you had in, uh, in school at one time, if you go back a certain distance, but, but uh, steam-generated uh, uh, water that cycles through radiators that heats the house, and they have, um, I forget what they call them now, but they're basically fl- floor vents that, and the hot water cycles through there and heats, heats the home. So when your well goes down, you don't have hot water. And when you don't have hot water, you don't have heat. And so about a day and a half before uh, <clears throat> David was leaving to come down here, the well, something broke on the well, and it, they couldn't get any water out of the well. They still haven't figured out what the problem is, or maybe they have. He went home Tuesday, so maybe he's figured it out by now. But he spent a day and a half, instead of studying the Word and getting ready to go to the conference, he spent a day and a half trying to deal with getting the water to flow through their whole system so they could get heat in the house and so they could take showers and they could wash their dishes and do all the things we do with water. So he made the, made the comment that how many people had taken certain positive circumstances to indicate that it was God's will for them to go uh, to this conference. He said if he was basing his decision on being there on circumstances, he never would have left Connecticut. If the Apostle Paul were basing his decisions on the will of God on positive circumstances, he would have bailed halfway through the first missionary journey, probably before that, about the time they were, they were trying to stone him in Damascus. When he headed into Arabia, he wouldn't have returned. This is all part of the core problem that we've got with the whole holiness, Pentecostal, charismatic movement. Uh, uh, the Only a symptom of the problem is their emphasis, a wrong emphasis, and a not a biblically derived emphasis on the baptism of spirit, signified necessarily by speaking in tongues as a work after salvation. The real root problem is interpreting Scripture on the basis of experience rather than interpreting experience on the basis of the Word of God. This leads to all kinds of distractions in the Christian life. And I've been surprised. 
I shouldn't be, but I've been surprised at how many people, some of whom are in this congregation, some of whom have been part of this congregation or been part of other doctrinal or teaching congregations in this city, and when they have read some of these books that have been published recently about people who have an out-of-body experience, I I don't remember the names of these uh, books off the top of my head, but one was a young boy who... um, told his father about an experience he had had when he had had surgery when he was three or four years old, and uh, he had had the experience of dying on the operating table and going to heaven and relating all of the experiences there. And over the last two or three years, there have been two or three of these kinds of books that have come out, and I have just been amazed at some of the so-called mature believers that I thought knew better who have thought how wonderful these stories are. They tell us so much about heaven. Well, why aren't you reading your Bible to learn about heaven? The Apostle Paul went to heaven, and when he came back, God wouldn't let him tell anybody about it. So this little boy is better than Paul? Some of these other people are better than Paul? See, what we're, the problem here is that we're judging the Bible. We're interpreting it on the basis of experience and not learning from the Word of God what it says and then taking that as our spotlight and shining that on our experience and thinking that no matter how much it may feel or experience as if something is happening, the Word of God tells us that we're just being deceived. What does Jeremiah say? The heart is deceptive above all things. also says it's wicked, but I'm emphasizing that one attribute. The heart is deceptive. You've got something inside you that is constantly deceiving your mind into thinking that that your experience is one thing when in reality it's something else. And the only thing that cuts through that, that shines a light on that, is the Word of God. And so this is part of the problem whenever people teach on the spiritual gifts, is the spiritual gifts have to do with people's abilities to serve the Lord within the body of Christ. And immediately in our self-absorbed, Culture. And this, go, and this, I've witnessed this going back to the time I was a, a, a teenager. Is that as soon as you start talking about spiritual gifts, people start turning inward and trying to figure out, oh, what's my spiritual gift? Spiritual gift is not a key to growing spiritually. A spiritual gift will manifest itself in your life as you grow spiritually and as you seek to serve the body of Christ. You will, I think, if you're, if you are living the Christian life, applying the word, that as you seek to serve in any capacity, your spiritual gift will manifest itself over time. It will, it will indicate itself simply because you will end up um, <clears throat> ministering in areas where you feel most competent and comfortable, and and that will manifest itself. But just because you don't have one gift or you have another gift isn't an excuse for not functioning in all these different areas because giftedness or spiritual gifts are only enablements in certain areas. But we're, all believers are still held accountable for ministering in all of the different areas of the spiritual gifts, serving one another, teaching one another, encouraging one another, giving. All of these are spiritual gifts, leadership in some area. Now, some people lead in in some way. Some people lead in another way. You lead in the home. If you're a parent, you lead in the home. If you're teaching in a Sunday school class, you're teaching and you're leading. 
all of these are just functions of the the, uh, the service ministry that's uh, resp- that every believer is responsible for. So, going back to our doctrine of spiritual gifts, and last time we just covered the one point that there are two categories of spiritual gifts: permanent and temporary. And this has been such a distraction for a lot of people. I wanted to go back over it one more time just to hit the high points to help you think through this passage because uh, there are times when you may in, get involved in a conversation with somebody and need to understand wh- what these passages are, are saying. So we, <clears throat> take, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, which is really the primary passage for understanding that some gifts are temporary, specifically uh, revelatory gifts, but a couple of the temporary gifts were not necessarily revelatory, such as healing and miracles. So the best categorization is to classify them as temporary versus permanent. The temporary gifts had their own uh, basis. So uh, the key passage is 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13. I just want to review some of the observations that we see here. There are three gifts mentioned, prophecy, uh, knowledge, prophecy, and uh, tongues. Knowledge, prophecy, and tongues. And knowledge and prophecy are both said to be partial, and they're both said to be abolished at some point in the future. A different verb is used for tongues, but tongues is said to cease. So those three gifts are not temporary. They're contrasted, though, with three virtues of the Christian life that are more permanent, faith, hope, and love. What we see is that prophecy and knowledge are both said to be partial or incomplete. The gift of languages, though, or tongues, is not incomplete. So verse 8 says that uh, prophecies will fail, they'll be abolished, tongues will cease, knowledge will, will also fail, same verb that's used for prophecies. Then it, verse 9 says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. So those have to do with something that's incomplete. Paul then states that the partial prophecy and the partial knowledge are abolished when something called the perfect comes, the Greek word teleos. Something called the perfect comes, and that's perfect is not the best translation. It has to do with something complete, something, because it's contrasted with that which is partial. So we're talking, last time I used the term quantitative. A quantity, you have a incomplete quantity or a complete quantity. And so knowledge and prophecy are incomplete, but when the perfect or that which completes comes, because that's the meaning of the word teleos, that which completes, when that which completes comes, then that which is partial is done away. Why is it done away? Because it's no longer, because it's no longer needed. That, That which is complete has arrived. So that's clearly showing that knowledge and prophecy are, are incomplete and will not continue. The fact that tongues is said to cease indicates it probably ceases or dies out of its own before something happens that completes the prophecy and knowledge. And then Paul uses that word katergeo, the word translated abolish or cease or will fail, again in verse 11, showing that those verses down there, verse 11 and 12, are illustrations of what ha- what happened. So verse 11 t- uses a a growth metaphor. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. 
A child's thinking is incomplete. It's also immature. Now, there are some who hold a view that, that this really isn't talking about the completion of the canon, but maturity. Now, let me help you understand that. In what, in the, in the view of the church, what makes the church, what causes the church to move or shift from being immature to being mature is that the apostles and prophets pass off the scene. The apostles and prophets function like a tutor. They function like a nanny, okay? So the early church functioned under a system of nannies, of babysitters, of parents that could guide and direct the early church because they were receiving new revelation from God, which wasn't yet inscripturated and wasn't yet available for all believers. And so the apostles and the prophets are said in Ephesians 2.20 to be the foundation of the church. And when the, when the apostles and prophets moved off the scene, there wasn't anyone left to oversee and guide the church as the ultimate authority base. So when somebody said, God told me to do X, there wasn't a group to say, you're wrong. God's not telling you that. They didn't have that authority structure. So in that sense, the church moves from immaturity to maturity. But what is it that ultimately makes that difference? When the apostles and prophets are there, the reason they're needed is because the, um, the, the revelation from God hadn't been completed yet. The New Testament canon hadn't been completed yet, so the early church was functioning on an insufficient knowledge base. And it was through the apostles and prophets that you had a system of checks on anyone who claimed to be giving new revelation. And they were the ultimate authority to, to guard the church. So once the canon is completed, then you have all the information, the church has all the information needed to continue through the centuries. So this is where the maturity view and the canon view are really two sides of the same coin. The, the apostles and prophets pass off the scene because the church is reaching a maturity stage, and what makes it a maturity stage is it has a sufficient canon. It has a complete canon. Now, when I was teaching this at the um, <clears throat> conference on... Um, uh, dis- for dispensational hermeneutics at the uh, Baptist Bible Seminary, there was a pastor that asked uh, a perceptive question, and one I've thought about since since then. And he said, "Well, when's the canon closed? Is this does this really end when the Apostle John puts the last period in the last verse of the last chapter in Revelation 22?" Or is there a transition stage? Because at that point, even though the canon had objectively been completed, most people didn't even have ten books of the New Testament and probably never saw more than ten books of the New Testament. And it actually took a period of of collection and circulation over the next hundred years before uh, people had most of the New Testament available to them. And I've thought about that, and most of us have this idea that God sort of separates dispensations with a guillotine. 
And I think I've abused a lot of people that notion by understanding the note, the idea of transition in Acts. That, and you see this that happens every, in dispensational shifts. And when Abraham was 65 years old, God appeared to him in Ur of the Chaldees and told him to, to Lechlecha to get out and to head to a land that God was going to show him. That's an objective dispensational shift. How many people knew that? Abraham. It was a long time before it became apparent that God had shifted how he was going to work in history, but the shift had come objectively. But the revelation of that shift took time for it to be communicated. People didn't have Twitter accounts. They couldn't just, you know, flash the news all the way around the world instantly. It took time. And I think it's helpful, and this is just something I've kind of worked through recently, to realize that there was probably a bit of a transition time there, because think about this. Let's say you're saved, and you're about 20 years old, and the year is 55 A.D. So you were born in 35 A.D. You're going to be 65 when the when the century shifts, or technically 66 in 101, okay? So you get saved when you're 20 years old. You were born in 30, what did I say, 35? You're, so when you're 20 years old and 55, you get saved. You get the spiritual gift of prophecy or knowledge or tongues or wisdom. Did that gift disappear when... John put that period at the end of Revelation, objectively. Or did it still continue throughout your lifetime because that still was needed through that early period of the collection circulation of the canon? Now, I don't know, but I think those are, those are interesting questions to kind of think through. And when you read the literature in the early church at the end of the first century and into the beginning of the second century, it's clear that they were still dealing with uh, people who, and they had very strict regulations on this, people who still claim to have some of these gifts. That's helpful for us because it causes us to realize how the early church understood these gifts, and they understood them the same way that, that the Old Testament understood, especially the gift of prophecy, that it wasn't what I pointed out last time in terms of Wayne Grudem's idea that the New Testament gift was something different from the Old Testament gift. The early church writers, and I'm not talking about the apostles, I'm talking about the ones who came, who probably heard the apostles, that listened to the apostles, like the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, uh, First Clement, uh, Clement was a pastor in Rome, Clement of Rome. Uh, these were written some arguably as early as 60, 70, 80, 90 uh, A.D., maybe the first century into the, into the next chapter. It's very clear by the time you get to 160, you have the rise of one of the first heresies in the early church in what was known as Montanism. And in Montanism, you had uh, an early form of the charismatic movement. They weren't speaking in tongues, but they were emphasizing um, they were emphasizing prophecy, and the church came down hard on Montanus and his followers. Incidentally, Tertullian, later on, the man who is known because he coined the term Trinity that we use today. 
uh, for, for describing the triune God. Uh, Tertullian was a Montanist. They believed in the continuation of the gift of prophecy. But the standards that the church used to show that Montanism was a heresy came right out of Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. So basically what I'm saying is that's a new thought probably for everyone here is that maybe you have a little bit of a transition period uh, between 95 and probably 130, 140, 150 that these gifts died out as the canon was taking hold and being passed around. Uh, but clearly, it's because there's a completed canon and the church is shifting from that uh, immature dependency view in the early church to a, to a mature, a maturity based upon a completed canon that these gifts died out so that by at least, uh, the midpoint of the second century, if not 20 or 30 year, years earlier, these gifts would have all passed from the scene. So, 1 Corinthians 13.8, love never fails, emphasizes the permanence of love in contrast to the temporary nature of these this set of gifts. And then we looked at the way in which people have interpreted the perfect. And this is the real issue. Is it <clears throat> refer to the completed camp canon or the mature church? That's the objective view that there's something that happens at the end of the first century that brings knowledge and prophecy to a cessation, I mean, a completion point. It's no longer needed, no longer given. And then you have the other view that is really the dominant view. You're going to hear this from a number of people, and that is that somehow when we move from this life to a life when we're face-to-face with the Lord, whether that's at death, at the rapture, at the second coming, at the eternal state, or sometime in the future, that that's when perfection arrives. Now, this is the key to this, to understanding the interpretation here one more time. I tried to put this down in three basic statements. If the perfect arrives when we enter an eternal state face-to-face with the Lord, then what that means is that that knowledge, prophecy, and tongues continue until the we go into heaven, until we're face-to-face with the Lord in whatever sense that is. And faith, hope, and love continue from that point on, that is, in heaven, in a state where we're face-to-face with the Lord, faith, hope, and love continue. If you take that interpretation... The problem is that since hope and love are contrasted with sight, today we walk by faith and not by sight, but when we're in heaven, we're going to be face-to-face with the Lord. We'll be walking by sight, not by faith. Faith is limited to this earth. Romans 8.24 says the same thing regarding hope. Hope is based on sight. But when we're face-to-face with the Lord, it won't be hope anymore because hope is a confident expectation of something, and that expectation will be fulfilled. Okay, so hope and faith are for temporal environment today, not an eternal state environment. So obviously, we can't have knowledge, prophecy, and tongues. We can't have the temporary gifts continuing in a temporal environment or throughout a temporal environment, and then faith, hope, and love continue in an eternal state environment, because faith and hope won't be there. So that means that uh, that faith and hope 
must con- that, that that excuse me the temporary gifts must continue to a point in time and then they end faith hope and love continue after that in time but then when this temporal environment is over with and we're face to face with the lord what continues is love faith hope and love love is permanent verse 8 love never fails and what abides are faith hope and love what continues is faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. So that makes it very clear that this, uh, that, that the faith and hope position as being related to eternity just doesn't work. The perfect as the eternal state, the rapture, face to face with the Lord, second coming, just doesn't work with the rest of scripture. The other key element in breaking open this interpretation is understanding that the now in verse 12 and the now in verse 13 Refer, are, are, reflect different words in the Greek. And that's huge. Because Paul doesn't shift synonyms that close together without a, without a reason. The scripture doesn't. Now you have a trend, I've pointed this out many times before in, in modern, uh, uh, studies, that, well, this is just for stylistic differences. Well, Paul uses the, the that verb katargeo four times in this passage without changing it. He doesn't, he doesn't change words for stylistic reasons. He changes words for doctrinal reasons. And so the now in verse 12 is the Greek word RT, which according to a number of Greek grammars, Kittles, dictionary, a couple of others, when these two words are used in the same context, the RT means right now, like today or this minute. It's an immediacy. Whereas nuni, the word that's used in verse 13, has a broader sense, like now in this decade, or now in this century, or now in this age, in contrast to now, today, or right now, or this immediate period. So the contrast then is between a now that Paul's talking about, when prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are operational, and a then in the same church age when they're not. Because love will, will eventually continue. The same thing is true in relation to the, uh, the illustrations that he gives. We go through, a, the church goes through a period like a child, and then when he reaches maturity, he puts away childish things, which is an incomplete knowledge of life. He next uses the image of a mirror that we see in a mirror. Now, as I pointed out last time, a mirror isn't uh, like the old King James we see through a glass darkly. We're not seeing through glass. We're seeing a mirror that reflects back on us. And so what we're looking at in the mirror is us. And if the mirror is incomplete or the mirror is foggy, or then we can't see ourselves clearly. And when knowledge and prophecy are partial, and that relates to the mirror, you can't know. And so he uses this imagery of face-to-face. It's face-to-face with the mirror, not face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the reason many people have missed this is that they read it, and they read theology into the passage. How many times do you hear somebody say, well, when we die, we're going to be face-to-face with the Lord? So then you read face-to-face, and you go, oh, that ought to be with the Lord. See, that's reading your preconceived notions into the text. When you're looking in a mirror, you're not face-to-face with somebody else. You're face-to-face with yourself. So that's what this is describing, is that that when the mirror is incomplete, it's a, it's a puzzle. You don't see the whole picture. But 
when the knowledge, and that's a picture of knowledge, which is what he goes on to talk about in the second half of the verse. Now, I know in part. See, looking in the mirror is related to partial knowledge. It's a fuzzy mirror. It's a foggy mirror. It's enigmatic. But then when the mirror is complete, that's the implication, we'll know completely. We'll have a sufficient knowledge of ourselves. Someone called that the perspicacity of Scripture. That's a great term. The perspicacity of Scripture. The Scripture is not perspicacious if it's insufficient or incomplete. But when the Scripture is complete, then it shows us who we are in all of its completion. So we move from knowing in part to knowing fully. We don't, knowing fully doesn't mean omniscient. Even when we're in heaven, we're not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. A million years from now, when we've been there 10,000 years as we sing in Amazing Grace, we're still not going to know everything. When we've been there 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000, there's still going to be things to learn. We're not going to know everything. So we know partially from the Scripture, but the Scripture gives us a complete, sufficient knowledge of who we are. So then I put up this timeline the now that Paul talks about is in this time frame that he's living in. When Scripture is still being composed, remember he wrote 1 Corinthians sometime around 54, 55, when he's in, when he's in Ephesus. And uh, uh, this is during the pre-canon period. So, so he's still a good six, what would that be? Good 16 years away from the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment on Israel. That's what ends the use of tongues because according to, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21, the purpose for tongues was a sign of judgment for Israel. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 28, verses 11 and 12. So, Israel was warned, even in the Mosaic Law, they were warned that a sign of judgment was that they would hear the word of God in strange languages, in foreign languages. And that was a sign that God was bringing judgment upon the nation and the land. So, so Paul is talking about this, this period in which he lived as the immediate now when knowledge, prophecy, and tongues were operational. But after 70 A.D., tongues ceased, and once the canon was complete, then knowledge and prophecy died out. And then you enter into the mature stage of the uh, church age, the post-apostolic period that began in approximately 95 AD and will end with the rapture. And after the rapture, then uh, the tribulation and the millennial kingdom and on and what endures into eternity is love. But as long as we're in this temporal earth, which includes the tribulation and the millennial kingdom, then there'll be faith and hope will be operational. But in the eternal state, God sets up his dwelling upon the earth, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell upon the earth. So he concluded then that the perfect completes the two partial gifts which are revelatory. Therefore, it must be revelatory. It's the same kind as the other things. That indicates it must be revelatory, which means the canon of Scripture. The arrival of the perfect separates the immediate now from the future then. And then this is then illustrated by the child adult and then the mirror uh, statement in uh, uh, verses 11 and 12. 
Okay, so the, pa- the final point was that the uh, completion of the canon and the passing of the apostolic era transitions the church from a childhood stage based on an incomplete canon to a maturity stage based on a complete canon. All right, just wanted to go through all of that. The bottom line is you can't evaluate on the basis of some sort of subjective experience. This was the problem the Corinthians had because it, Corinth is located just across the Isthmus of Corinth and down the road from a place called Delphi. And Delphi was known because there was an oracle there, the oracle of Delphi, who was said to possess a puthanos, a python, a snake, and she had a python there. And she sat over this hole in the ground, and nobody really knows what came up, but some kind of vapors or gas came up. And she would enter into some sort of uh, trance, and she would speak in glossolalic utterance. She would the language of the gods, and you also had this was uh, this uh, tongue speaking kind of thing was operational in the worship of Dionysius. Dionysius was the god of wine, and the the worshippers would go up into various uh, sacred groves and drink enough wine until they started speaking in these glossolalic utterances, because the idea was if you drank enough wine, then the spirit, no pun intended, would enter into you and the God would speak through you in these divine-like languages. And so within the charismatic movement, you have people who often make these claims that they're speaking angelic languages or it's a special prayer language. And I had a conversation one time with a charismatic who said, but my prayers, when I speak it, when I pray in tongues, God always answers my prayer. It's so much more effective. I said, really, do you know what you pray for? No. Then how do you know that God is answering them if you don't know what you're praying for? He didn't know. But they make these kinds of claims all the time. All right. So the seventh point, there's a difference between temporary and spiritual gifts. The I mean permanent spiritual gifts. The permanent gifts are given for the edification and strengthening and service of the body of Christ. And so these gifts are given to every believer at the instant of salvation by God the Holy Spirit. They're sovereignly distributed. And we're given a list of gifts, as I pointed out last time, in the New Testament. But these I do not believe these gifts, these lists are necessarily exhaustive. But a number of these gifts are very broad, like the gift of service or the gift of helps. The, they're, they're very broad categories, and people can have a gift of service or a gift of helps, and it can be manifested a lot of different ways. Singing in the choir is not a spiritual gift. Playing a musical instrument is not a spiritual gift. Going on the mission field is not a spiritual gift. But these reflect spiritual gifts. Someone who sings in the in, in congregation in the aid of worship, that can be a function of the gift of helps. Some of us really need a lot of help in that area. It can be a function of service. Now, somebody who goes on the mission field may have the gift of evangelism, may have any of the spiritual gifts, actually, because all those things are operational on the mission field. Uh, but many of them have the gift of pastor-teacher. But one of the things I've always been concerned about since I was a young man is that on the mission field you have pastors and teachers who are, are always the most obvious. But you, but in order for any pastor, most of you know this, for, for any pastor 
to be effective in carrying out his ministry, there are dozens and dozens of people who are working behind the scenes who are making that happen. We have deacons who serve in the church, leadership people. We have a lot of other volunteers who do many, many things in this congregation that are often unseen and unknown by most of the people. Uh, they just assume, well, uh, you know, the bills get paid and the uh, uh, the floor gets vacuumed, the websites get built, but people in the congregation help do all of these things. That's the body of Christ working together, and that's true on the mission field. And I find that uh, it's a little bit shallow for a lot of Christians. Oh, I want to support uh, Billy Graham, and I want to support Jim Myers, I want to support George Meissner, but what about supporting the secretaries? What about supporting the... Uh, people that are working in the offices that ha- help them produce the materials they need to produce, uh, working on the translating materials, uh, all of these kinds of things. Some of that can be done by volunteers. Some of it needs to be done by people who, who do it full time and need to have uh, enough financial remuneration to be able to live according to that. That's just as important as supporting the the person who's at the front who is seen and heard most of the time. But all of that is important. All that's part of the mission field. So the mission missionary, gift of missionary, is not a gift. It's just somebody who decides instead of being a pastor in Houston, Texas, or in Cleveland, Ohio, or in Los Angeles, California, I'm going to be a, pa- a pastor in Berlin. I'm going to be a pastor in uh, Kiev. I'm going to be a pastor in Rome. I'm going to be a pastor in Thailand. Uh, they're just using their gift of pastor, teacher, or evangelist in another uh, another location. Now, this takes us to the eighth point, which is the purpose of these permanent spiritual gifts. It's for mutual ministry within the body of Christ. We're there, the, the purpose of spiritual gifts, as I pointed out a couple of lessons back, isn't for you to use it at work. If you have the gift of evangelism, the purpose of the gift of evangelism is stated in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. It's to equip your co-workers, right? No, I didn't say that. It's to equip the body of Christ, to do the work of the ministry, to equip your family. No, it's not to equip your family. It's not to equip your neighbors. It's to equip the members of the body of Christ to be more effective in evangelism. The, body, the, mem- the, the, the work of the, of the spiritual gifts is to minister to one another. That's other believers within the body of Christ. This is one of the weaknesses that we have when the body of Christ gets atomized into small groups, usually one, many times just one, sometimes two, who are crutching along on tapes or media or Internet or something like that because they don't have a, a group of believers to minister to. It, it, it short-circuits their the operation of their spiritual gifts to the body of Christ. Now, on the other side of that, one of the things that I've witnessed, and it's good and bad depending on where it is, is within some uh, Internet communities, it's provided people who are isolated to get together with other believers via the Internet so that they can not gossip. That's a failing that can happen sometimes, but that they can have a ministry to one another. And we live in a world today where the body of Christ, in terms of a true disciples who are seeking to grow and mature on the basis of the Word of God, is shrinking. 
And in some locales, even in large urban areas, it may be extremely difficult to find a local church where the pastor is teaching the Word of God and where there's not too much heresy and too much distraction. Now, I've always counseled people that you can go someplace, and things may not be everything you want them to be, but the pastor may give you a great opportunity to teach a Sunday school class or to just help out here or help out there, and you may have a tremendous ministry in that local church. And you never know how you might impact that local church over the next 5 or 10 or 15 years. Just because you go in there and you hear the pastor and he's pretty shallow and pretty superficial, don't just write that off. Look at going to church is not what I'm going to get from me, 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 but how I can have a ministry to this local body. Now, I'm not addressing that to people here at West Houston Bible Church as much as I'm addressing that to, to a lot of people who listen. Because a lot of people have fallen into a bad habit where they just flip on their, iP- their uh, iPad or their iPhone or uh, whatever in ter- and listen, and they think that's, that's great, that's wonderful. You're missing out on a whole portion of your spiritual life, which is ministering in a one another capacity to other members of the body of Christ within a local church ministry. The local church was instituted by, by Jesus Christ, not the Internet. Now, that's it's great to have the Internet. I had a guy listen to me one time when I was talking about this, and lived he lived up in Vermont. He sent me an email and said, Pastor, I've really tried to be part of a local church. The best church in town is a congregational church, and the pastor doesn't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And I just don't feel comfortable taking my kid there anymore. We've been going there for about five months. I said, no, you don't need to go there. You know, you don't sacrifice core orthodox biblical doctrine to be part of a local church. But there are a lot of local churches that aren't that bad, they're not that, they may be not that great, and you may not be the most comfortable all the time, but the, and in fact, I, I know of one person, I'm not going to mention his name, because he brings his pastor to the pastor's conference all the time, but he could run intellectual circles around almost every pastor we know, and his pastor isn't that well educated, but he has had an incredible ministry with that pastor. Another one is George Meisinger. George goes to a huge church in, in, uh, in Albuquerque, and he's been, since he started going to that church, he's been meeting with that pastor one-on-one and challenging him in areas of exegesis and getting deeper in his messages and has had a tremendous ministry there. And when I went to Israel last year, uh, one of the ladies that was on the trip uh, teach, helps teach, helps with her husband teaching a Sunday school class. And whenever her husband can't be there, George teaches. And it's had a tremendous impact on the adults in that congregation. But but George or somebody like that could go and say, you know, I can run intellectual, theological, spiritual circles around this pastor and leave him in the dust, but I can have a great ministry here serving the Lord and have an impact on this congregation instead of being self-absorbed and saying, I'm here just to see what I can get out of it. And I've heard that from a lot of believers over the years. Well, I went there once or twice, but I can't get anything out of it. On the other hand, I recognize, and I know somebody may even be listening tonight, who really put forth a strong effort to be involved in a local church that was fairly close to where they live. They don't live here locally in Houston. They live somewhere else in the state. 
And it just finally got to a point where the pastor asked him to leave because every time the pastor would ask him to teach a Sunday school class or this thing or that thing, he would teach something and the pastor would say, no, 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 that's not right. And there were just too many little doctrinal conflicts that eventually um, just they just couldn't operate there. So we have to understand that we have a role as believers in mutual ministry and service in the body of Christ. And that's something that is true for West Houston Bible Church. And another thing that's part of that is you have to get to know people in the congregation in order to be able to minister. Now, you can't know everybody in the congregation, but you ought to get to know four or five or six people in the congregation fairly well, not just walk in at the last minute and walk out as soon as I say amen. You have to know people to have these kinds of ministries with them in the body of Christ. I keep coming back to that because it's so obvious, but I've heard Christians say, well, I can function in my spiritual gift at the office or with other Christians I know, but the, the, the focal point of these passages is within the local church. That's what was established by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to function there. Now, we also have to remember and balance this by realizing spiritual gifts are not the means of spiritual growth or church growth. The reason I added that last part is because we live in an era when something started, uh, something horrible started in the late 60s. It doesn't sound like a bad idea, but it spawned a lot of bad ideas, and that's known as the church growth movement. Church growth movement came mostly out of Fuller Seminary. A few other places were influential under um, under the leadership of uh, several different people there, one of whom was was a C. Peter Wagner. And this spawned a lot of these mega churches, and they're building churches on the basis of just human skills and human tactics. And one of the ways that they would teach this is the first thing you have to do. In fact, I interviewed Wagner for something uh, about 25 years ago, and uh, we got around to talking about this, and I had had him recommended in a couple of seminary classes, oh, you have to read Peter Wagner's book on spiritual gifts. Because you have to get your people on to know what their spiritual gift is, otherwise you can't build a healthy church. Well, I've known a lot of healthy churches that never did that because they weren't going to go along with the self-absorbed culture of the day. But that's where the self-absorbed culture goes, is you've got to get people plugged into their spiritual gift. No, you have to get people plugged into the Word of God. You have to get people plugged into doctrine. And you've got to get get them walking by the Spirit so the Holy Spirit can enable them and strengthen them in their spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. The issue is the Word of God, not the experience. You may go your whole life and never know for sure what your spiritual gift is if it's not one of the more obvious ones. But that doesn't mean you're not utilizing it in your spiritual life. That's really the ninth point. It's not necessary to identify your spiritual gift in order to use it. As you're growing and maturing in Christ, if you seek to serve the Lord, you will use your spiritual life. Now, the tenth point I have is that there's a distinction between natural talents and abilities and spiritual gifts. Some of us were born and we had great natural talents. We had natural skills mentally. We had an IQ of 140, 150, 160. Other people had great skills with numbers in mathematics. Other people had great skills in their ability to think logically. Some people didn't. Some of the, I mean, there, I've known some people who really weren't all that bright, but they sure were faithful to their study of the word. 
And I think some of those people are going to be in some tremendous places in the, in the kingdom because they were just faithful to the Lord. They, they didn't, they weren't given a lot of natural talent, but they used it well. So people are given natural talents and natural abilities, music. Uh, some people are, are naturally are good orators, good speakers. That's not their spiritual gift. They were that, they would be that way even if they were unsaved. They just have a natural ability, a natural talent in that area. What spiritual gifts are, uh, are divine enhancement that's given at the point of salvation. And it's developed in some degree as you develop spiritually and it becomes more and more apparent. Sometimes I believe, can't give you a scripture on this, but I think spiritual gifts often intersect with your natural talents and natural abilities. And they work together so that spiritual gifts look different in everybody. Everybody's different. They have a different personality. Uh, if you're a pastor, then you're going to have a different personality and a different way of doing things than the pastor that influenced you because he's a different person. Doctrine doesn't change. Teaching the truth doesn't change. But be true to yourself. Be true to your own personality. Be true to your own uh your own style, your own talents, your own abilities, and whatever the spiritual gifts are that God's given you. So, But don't I make the mistake of identifying spiritual gifts with natural talents or abilities. Eleven, spiritual gifts have spiritual efficacy only when operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit. I don't mean that you can't use your spiritual gift unless you're operating under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. I don't mean that. I mean, just like anything else in your spiritual life, unless you're walking by the Spirit when you're doing it, it's it's either going to be gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. And if you're walking according to the flesh, it's just going to produce wood, hay, and straw. People may benefit from it because God's going to bless his word even if you're out of fellowship. But if you're in fellowship, then it's going to accrue spiritual significance and value to you and to others. Twelfth point, we have to recognize the body of Christ is like a team. Think about a team like the Seattle Seahawks, as much as you may not like them. Where would they be without a quarterback? Where would they be if all they had was quarterbacks? See, there's a, a lot of different positions and a lot of different talents and a lot of different skills needed to come together to produce a healthy team. And that's what the body of Christ is. There's a lot of different people doing a lot of different things, and they don't have to all be the same way. So we have different positions, different spiritual gifts, and we function. And when we're all walking by the Spirit, it is a magnificent and wonderful thing. Thirteenth point, that the purpose of spiritual gifts is to edify the body of Christ, not unbelievers, not outside, and I mean the local body of Christ. Now, there are ways in which we can minister to other believers at times, but the primarily the, the, the purpose is seen in the New Testament is functioning within that local body of believers. Spiritual gifts is not about what you get out of it. Now, that's re- that point there that I'm making, though a person may receive edification as a byproduct of the use of his or her gift, that's a big problem in the charismatic movement because people think that, well, I'm edified when I use my spiritual gift of tongues. Well, buddy, let me tell you something. The use of your spiritual gift is to edify somebody else, not yourself. If you're, if you're doing it for yourself, 
then you're carnal, and it's a wrong use of the gift. Uh, you may be edified as a byproduct. Let me tell you, I, I learn a lot studying the Word of God when I'm preparing for, for messages. But I don't study the Word of God just for what I get out, out of it in terms of my own spiritual life. I'm studying it so that I can utilize my spiritual gift to help guide, direct, teach, inform believers so that they can be more effective in their spiritual life. And yeah, I enjoy that and I get something out of it, but I'm not doing it for what I can get out of it. I'm doing it because I want to serve other people. There's a byproduct that, oh, it's great to be used by God. But that is the, the personal enrichment side of it is, is not why we utilize our spiritual gift. Then the last point is that a person may have more than one gift and a person may have different proportions of those gifts. So some people may be richly given the gift of pastor-teacher or just have it in a smaller amount. He may have other gifts such as mercy, such as helps, such as um, uh, evangelism. And these are mixed together. So no two pastors are going to be the same, and God uses each individual in rich ways to minister to the body of Christ. And that tells us that we shouldn't ever idolize a pastor because God has given many different pastors in the church age, and they contribute many different things in the church age to the body of Christ. And there are some wonderful pastors, and there have been some great pastors, and there have been some intellectual pastors, and there have been some very caring pastors, but every one of them are fulfilling God's mission for them. And God has provided many different pastors for the body of Christ, not just one. And so we need to recognize that there are different pastors for different congregations, and sometimes the congregational needs shift and another pastor needs to come in. You think about the church of Ephesus during the first century. Paul was there. Timothy was there. Apollos was there. There were a number of different pastors. The last pastor they had was the Apostle John. So over a course of about 40 years, they had four or five great men in that congregation in Ephesus. And they had other congregations there as, as well and in some of the other towns around Ephesus. But Ephesus was, was the sort of the Las Vegas playground of the uh, ancient world. And so they're, they're, uh, uh, they had a lot of distractions to deal with. But there are a lot of different pastors that came and went. So there wasn't just one. Timothy was there for about 20 years. The Apostle Paul, uh, Apostle John was there for, for a while. So you did hear people saying, well, you can go listen to Timothy, but I'm going to go listen to the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle John. He was Jesus' best friend. You didn't have that kind of nonsense going on there. We need to correct our attitudes on some of these things. Next time we'll come back and we'll get into the final uh, discussion on tongues, I mean on, um, on spiritual gifts in Romans uh, 12, and then we'll go on into the next section dealing with the central role of love in the body of Christ. Yeah, Jeff. You got a question? Yes, sir. Uh, the other evening, when you put the list of gifts, mm-hmm. you had uh, the, uh, the gift of pastor, teacher, and then you had the gift of teacher and teaching. Yeah. And my question is, is there a distinction? Yeah, I think there is. I think the gift of pastor, teacher is is a leadership gift, primarily functioning through teaching, but it has a leadership 
uh, a leadership dimension. That's what a shepherd does. The word for pastor is shepherd, and that ha- he's leading as well as teaching. Then you also have the role of teachers. That's a good question. I didn't get there. I was going to get there uh, this time, but I didn't. I'll get back to that chart next time. All right. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this evening and to uh, think through, again, the spiritual gifts, their role in our own spiritual life, trying to have a correct biblical perspective on these gifts and on the, our, our, our ministry within the body of Christ. We thank you for your grace that was exhibited at the cross, that we can have salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, not on the basis of our works, and that that sets a pattern for our whole spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.